Church, go ahead and grab your Bibles, if you would, this morning and open up with me to the book of Psalms. And uh, let's bow together again for a word of prayer and just ask for God's help on this portion of the service. So bow with me, if you would. Uh, Lord, we do come just to say again that, that our righteousness is found in Christ alone. Lord, we don't come finding our hope or finding our righteousness in anything that we've done. It's not, um, Lord, it's not in how loud we sing. It's not in um, our emotions. It's not in how deep or strong our theology is. It's not in how faithful we are in attending. It's our righteousness is in Christ. Our debt was paid by Jesus' death, and it is now only through Christ that that we could sing, no condemnation now we dread. All for us is Christ. We're thankful for his sacrifice. And Lord, our prayer is as we turn our attention now to the Psalms that, that our gaze would be drawn again to the Lord Jesus and what he's done for us. And so Lord, we ask for your help in that and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, church, we're going to be in Psalm 38 together this morning. Psalm 38. I was uh, telling Courtney this week that I love the Psalms. I don't just love preaching the Psalms. I love the Psalms. I don't know that there is a book that I study that, that God uses more to minister to my soul than he does the Psalms. Because the Psalms, in part, were put here by God to help us pray. The Psalms were put here, in part, by God to help us express ourselves. I say all the time that... Um, the Psalms don't just speak to us, the Psalms speak for us. And that is so true that no matter what position you're in spiritually, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in in life, you can find a Psalm that will help you express your heart to God. That is absolutely the case. So when you walk outside tonight and you look up at the sky and you see the stars and the and the moon, and you're blown away by the size of the universe and how tiny you are in comparison, what do you pray in that moment? Well, you pray, God, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have made, what is man that you are mindful of? him? you pray the Psalms. When you have those times in your life, when you go to the Lord in prayer and your heart is dry and cold and you don't even know what to pray to God, it's the Psalms in those moments that can give you a voice. When, when your heart's bursting with thanksgiving, it's the Psalms that show us how to praise. When your heart's broken in a million pieces, it's the Psalms that show us how to lament. And when we have those seasons where, where we have made a mess in our lives because of our sin and it feels like you're rotting away on the inside and you don't know what to do and you feel like you're being crushed by the weight of it, it's the Psalms that show us how to confess. And that's what Psalm 38 is. It is a Psalm of confession. And I just want to jump in and let's read it in its entirety before we start pulling out some thoughts. If your Bible's open to Psalm 38, we're going to read all 22 verses. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes Psalm 38 verse 1. O oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones 
because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I'm troubled. I'm bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are full of inflammation and there's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil in my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you. And my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants. My strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also is gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. And my relatives stand afar off. Those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of my destruction and plan deception all the day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. And I, like a mute who does not open his mouth, thus I'm like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth is no response. For in you, O Lord, I hope. You will hear, O Lord my God. For I said, hear me lest they rejoice over me, lest when my foot slips they exalt themselves against me. For I'm ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. But my enemies are vigorous and they're strong. And those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those also who render evil for good, they're my adversaries because I follow what's good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. There, there's a part of the, of the catechism that we teach to our kids on, uh, on repentance. And the question is, how do I repent of my sins? And the answer is, I must be sorry enough for my sin to hate and forsake it. So the question this morning is, how do we pray when we're sorry for our sins like that? And I hope this is something that you can relate to. Uh, you know, being a Christian doesn't just mean there was a time 20 years ago when I, I felt bad about how I was living and I didn't want to go to hell, so I prayed a prayer and repented and believed. No, no, no. Christians aren't just people who once repented. Christians are repenters. We still struggle with sin. We're still tempted to sin. And, and at the same time, in our hearts, we hate our sin. The very sin that at times we're drawn to, we despise it. And we long for the day. This, isn't this one of the things that we long for? If you're a believer, this is one of the things you should long for the most about heaven. Right? There's that line in Come Thou Fountain that says, Oh, that day when freed from sinning. You know that line? I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace. There's coming a day. There's coming a day when we'll be freed from sinning. But that day's not here yet. We still struggle. And when we fail, we ache over it. So how do we express that ache to God? That's what Psalm 38 is designed to show us. And I should say this too. 
If you've never prayed anything like Psalm 38, if you've never felt anything like what David is expressing here, I wonder if you're really a Christian. Because this isn't just, this isn't just written to show us David confessing. This is inspired scripture, meaning God put this here so that through David, we can see what confession looks like. So that you and I know what to do when we have that same sort of angst in our hearts that feels like it's pulling us apart in, in our guilt and shame. So let me give you two general points about this psalm before we start getting into the details of it. Um, first, broadly speaking, this would be categorized as a psalm of lament. There's lots of those in the Psalter, psalms of lament. But more specifically, kind of a, a, a subcategory under psalms of lament, this is a penitential psalm. That means this is a psalm of repentance. It's a psalm of confession. There, there are seven such penitential psalms in the Psalter. If you're interested in writing them down, those seven psalms are Psalm 6, Psalm 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. So those, those are all psalms that that cry out to God for help and cry out to God for forgiveness out of the quagmire of sin. And Psalm 38 is the perfect follow-up to Psalm 37. If you were here two weeks ago, you know that Psalm 37 is a psalm of wisdom for an upside-down world. We're in a world that is filled with evil and there's all sorts of evil people, so we can expect grief in this world. But Psalm 38 reminds us that that some of our greatest griefs, listen, some of our greatest griefs aren't going to come because we're in a fallen world. Some of our greatest griefs are going to come because we have fallen hearts. Some of the deepest pains that we'll deal with in life won't come from people sinning against us. It will come from our own sin. Psalm 38 holds that up for us. And you'll notice that there is a, a superscription. There's a, an inspired heading to start this psalm, it's worded very simply, a psalm of David to bring to remembrance. Now your translation might word it, it's a psalm for uh, a remembrance offering or it's a psalm for a memorial offering. But it's really just the word for remembrance. It's a psalm for remembrance. What, what is this psalm meant to help remember? Well, David could have written it to help him remember this. In other words, David could have written this so that as he and we would later be tempted to sin, we could look back and read this psalm and be reminded of how miserable sin leaves us. Right? We forget that in the moment. When I'm in the moment being tempted to sin, the pleasure of the sin seems better than the consequences, but it's always the case. On the other side of it, the pleasure seems so minimal compared to the misery that sin brings. And so David could have put, in this psalm, put this psalm here so that we can read it and we can be reminded of the ruin that sin brings. Or it could be a, a psalm that's calling God to remember. In the Bible, God remembering is synonymous with God acting. So, so this could be a psalm where it's written to call God to remember. We're, we're using this psalm to call God to hear and to come and to act and to help. And maybe David has both of those in mind, but it is a psalm of remembrance. And we're going to work through it under, under five headings. Number one, 
first heading is the theological ramifications of sin. David, David is going to work through some of the different effects of sin in this psalm. And the first one I want to see is the theological effect. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. David says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. One of the things you'll notice as we go through this is that David's suffering here is complicated. And what I mean by that is David's not just suffering over one thing. So on the one hand, there's the guilt of his sin. Then on top of that, there's some sort of physical affliction. Then on top of that, he's sinking emotionally into depression. On top of that, he feels like his friends have abandoned him. On top of that, he feels like his enemies are closing in on him. So it's like in this psalm, David is barely hanging on by a thread. And he believes that most of this suffering is from the hand of God. Did you notice that? David says, Lord, it is your arrows that have pierced my heart. Lord, it is your heavy hand that's pressing down on me so that I can hardly breathe. The point is, David is recognizing that all of these different avenues of hardship in his life, he sees these things as part of God's discipline for his sin. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about God's discipline toward his children. Probably the best-known passage on that is Hebrews chapter 12. And it would be worth reading the whole thing. But let me just read two verses. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6 says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And scourges every son whom he receives. God chastens, disciplines his children. Hebrews here says that sometimes God chastens or disciplines in the form of rebuke. A rebuke is a word of correction, right? You read the Bible, you hear a sermon, you're in a Sunday school class, and God wonderfully, powerfully speaks to you in that moment a word of correction. That's a rebuke. But the writer of Hebrews says that sometimes God scourges. That's the word for a whipping, a spanking. It, it's where physical pain is being inflicted. And the point is that sometimes God will put his children through a physical, an emotional, a, a spiritual scourging in order to discipline us for our sin. And I, I need to say this quickly. Um, there's a difference between God's punishment and God's discipline, Right? Punishment has to do with God making you pay for your sins. Punishment is, is God moving out in wrath to make us pay for sin. And if your trust is in Jesus, you have not, you will not face punishment for your sin. If your trust is in Jesus, God does not and God will not make you pay for your sin. The good news of the gospel is that through Christ, payment for our sin has been made in full, right? Every ounce of wrath that should fall on us for our sins against God fell on Jesus. So there's not one drop of wrath left for you if you are in Jesus. Now, if you've never turned from your sins and, and trusted in Jesus, you are not under God's loving discipline. You are under God's divine wrath. 
And if you die in that position, you'll spend eternity facing the just punishment of God for your sins against Him in hell. But for everyone who repents and looks to Jesus in faith, the punishment is gone. Make sure you get that. It's what we just sang earlier. No condemnation now we dread, right? We have the promise that in Christ, listen, in my mind, I have no idea why I shouldn't be condemned. I, I deserve condemnation. Every week, I deserve condemnation. But we have the promise that in Christ, we will never face one second or one drop of that condemnation. Christian, God does not make you pay for your sins. God, God's goal is not to punish you. God's goal is to grow you. That, that's, maybe that's the best way to say it. Punishment and discipline have two different motivations and two different goals. So, so punishment is motivated by wrath and the goal is retribution. Discipline is motivated by love and the goal is maturity. So, so punishment is God acting as judge. Discipline is God acting as father. And if you're trusting in Jesus, you've been saved from God's punishment and you've been saved into God's discipline. And that's what David is describing here. David is convinced that what he's experiencing is God's discipline in his life for his sin. And David doesn't try to argue here that he doesn't deserve it. In fact, look at your text. He's clear that it's his sin that has brought this on. He says in verse 3, the last part of verse 3, there's not any health in my bones. Why? Because of my sin. Verse 5, my wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. Verse 18, I'll declare my iniquity. I'll be in anguish over my sin. So David's not saying that he should be exempt from this. You'll notice in verse 1, he doesn't ask God not to rebuke him. He just asks God not to rebuke him in his wrath. He doesn't ask God not to chasten him. He just asks God not to chasten him in his hot displeasure. My point is... It's not just the discipline of God that has David vexed here. What has David vexed here is the displeasure of God. David senses that there's a, there's a breach in his fellowship with God. God is displeased with him. And his soul, as a child of God, is in turmoil over the displeasure of God. And he's asking, he's pleading with God here to show him mercy. So get that. He, David is not... He's not trying to claim that he should be exempt from this difficulty that his sin has brought in his life. Once you throw the rock into the pond, you can't stop the ripples. And David knows it is his sin that has brought these ripples into his life. But what David is in such angst over is the displeasure of God. David wants, he wants the breach restored. Right back to our catechism with our kids how do you repent of your sins? I must be sorry enough for my sin to hate and forsake it. And then the next question is, why must you hate and forsake your sin? And the answer is, any, any of our kids know the answer? The answer is because it displeases God. That's the biggest problem with our sin. It displeases God. And that's what David senses here. God is displeased. Here's the second thing. 
Number two, I want to see the physical ramifications of sin. The physical ramifications. It's clear that David is experiencing some sort of physical malady as a result of his sin. Look at some of the words he uses. You'll notice, notice how the first phrase of verse 3 is, there is no soundness in my flesh. And then go down to verse 7. The last phrase of verse 7 is, and there is no soundness in my flesh. So it's like that's the bookends. There's no soundness in my flesh. There's no soundness in my flesh. And then in between that, David is explaining what he means. So what does he mean that there's no soundness in his flesh? Well, he says there's no soundness in my flesh or health in my bones. So David's saying this is from my flesh to my bones. He says in verse 5 that his wounds are foul and festering. It's a graphic picture. It's the picture that David has open, oozing, infected, foul-smelling sores on his body. He says in verse 6 that he's bowed down. It's like he's, he's bent over in pain. And he says in verse, verse 7 that his loins are full of inflammation. Your translation might word that. His sides are burning. It's like he's got some kind of abdominal pain that has David doubled over. And again, he sees all of this as God's discipline. I pointed out verse 5 earlier where David says that this is all because of his own foolishness. David had been a fool. It's the fool who lives like there's no God. And that's exactly what David had done. So make sure you, you get one of the points here. There can be times in our lives when we have some sort of physical affliction that God sins as part of his discipline to correct us in our sin. That's absolutely the case. There can be times in our lives when we have some sort of physical malady that is the instrument of God's discipline for us, that God intends to use to break our pride, that God intends to use to drive us to repent, or maybe that God intends to use just to, to sour our taste buds that sin that we're holding on to, God uses some sort of physical suffering to sour our taste buds to that sin so we won't be tempted to turn back to it anymore. So it's absolutely right that, that suffering, physical sickness, physical suffering can be tied to particular personal sins. But it's equally as important that I say it's not always the case that physical sickness or suffering is tied to some particular personal sin. Job's the perfect prime example of that, right? Job is going through this profound suffering and loss, even bodily affliction. And what had Job's friends so confused is they had this, this warped understanding of God. How did, how did Job's friends think about God? Well, they thought that God operated on this sort of direct exchange system where if you handed God something good, some good deed, God would give you good experiences in return. But if you handed God a bad deed, God would give you suffering in return. So they're looking at Job and they see suffering coming into to Job's life. So they assume he must have done something bad that had offended God. And they were wrong about that. They had a misunderstanding of God. God, God can use suffering for all sorts of purposes 
in our lives and for his glory. That's maybe another good example would be John 9. You remember that's where Jesus and the disciples see this blind man. And what did, what did the disciples say? What's their question? Who sinned, Jesus? Who sinned to cause this man to be born blind? Because they think, just like Job's friends, that suffering is always the direct result of some particular sin. And Jesus' response is, he's, he's not blind because of anybody's sin. He's blind because the glory of God is going to be put on display in his blindness. So on the one hand, it's right. If you're in some sin, you've been clinging to rebellion, and you begin to go through some physical affliction, some physical malady, it's right to think that that might be part of God's discipline, to, to let that be an instrument that drives you to repentance. But it's not right every time there's a physical affliction to think that you need to do some deep dive into your heart because there must be some super secret hidden sin there and you've got to figure out what that sin is that's causing that suffering. That's not right. And it's absolutely wrong to think that you can make that connection in somebody else's life. Okay, we're, we can be quick to jump to this conclusion sometimes where we know somebody and we see some suffering and we think, well, he's experiencing that because of that. Right? Be, be very careful about that. But it can be the case that God uses physical suffering as part of his rod of correction in the life of his children. And here David is 100% convinced that that relationship is true. And did you notice what David said his sins are doing? Look at, look at verse 4. David says, My iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. You see what David's saying? It's like, it's like his sins are piled up. His guilt is piled up so high that he can't get to the top. Think of it like a swimmer underwater. And David feels like he is so deep under the water of guilt, he can't get to the top to catch his breath. And then David says he feels like the weight on his shoulder is so heavy, he, he can't hold up on, uh, underneath it. He's going he's gonna to collapse underneath the weight of his shame. Have you ever felt that? Have, have you ever felt like the weight of your sin, the guilt, the shame of your sin is so heavy, it feels like there is a 10-ton weight sitting on your back? If you have, Psalm 38 is for you. That's where David is. Here's the third thing. Number three, I want to see the emotional, emotional ramifications of sin. Look at verse 10, and then we'll back up. David says in verse 10, My heart pants, my strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. David sounds like a man who is sinking into depression. The light has gone out in his eyes. He's lost all of his joy. His heart is pounding underneath the weight of this. Back up in verse 8, he says, I'm feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. David, the great mighty King David says he's feeble like an old man. He uses the phrase, the New King James translates it, he's severely broken. That means he is utterly crushed. So it's like, it's like he can't even verbalize what's going on in his heart. So David says, all he can do is groan. But here's the good news. Look down at verse 9. David says, Lord, 
All my desire is before you. And my sighing is not hidden from you. See what David's saying? David is saying, God, I know you hear my sighings. Lord, I know you you see my aching. You see my desire. You see the longings of my heart. The point is that even as David struggled to find the words to express his grief and his anguish to God, he didn't know how to verbalize it. He's wrestling through the words. But David is convinced that God hears his groanings. That is such good news. There have been times in my life when I have felt so overwhelmed in guilt, so overwhelmed in shame, so heavy underneath it, that if I had to put together some eloquent prayer where I could explain exactly what happened and exactly what I was feeling and exactly what I needed for God to do, if forgiveness depended on me being able to verbalize that, I would be in trouble. The best I could do is in between the groans, just say, Lord, help. Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, please help. What David is saying here, God hears the groans. God hears the groans of his people. So just take whatever feeble words you can muster and pour out your groans to God. He hears that there was a Presbyterian pastor in Michigan back in the late 1800s named uh, Elisha Hoffman. And there was a there was a senior adult lady in his church who was struggling. She had all sorts of trials that had come into her life. And he shares the story that one day he went to see her to try to check in on her. And as he was visiting with her, she began to lay out all the different sufferings that were going on and all the challenges that she was facing. And she was clearly in despair. And Pastor Hoffman said that he began to do his best to try to encourage her that he, he read a few verses of scripture with her and he prayed with her. But even after he had done all that, he could tell that, that she was still struggling. It didn't seem like he had done any good. And so he said that before he left, he said, I, I want to give you one last encouragement. It's good that you just shared your challenges with me and that we prayed together. But make sure you go to the Lord yourself. Share your burdens with the Lord. Cast your cares on Him. And he said when he said, when he said that to her, it's like a, a light went off in her eyes. And she said, yes, yes, I must tell Jesus, yes. And he said that he, as he left her house that day, her eyes and that line just sort of kept ringing in his ears for the rest of the day. And so he went home that night and he wrote, he wrote a hymn that will be familiar to probably all of you. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. You know that hymn? Um, there, then there's that, I think it's the third verse. Tempted and tried, I need a great Savior, one who can help my burdens to bear. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, he all my cares and sorrows will share. Well, that, that's, that's what David is saying here is, wherever you are, whatever the struggles are, as you've worked to find words, tell Jesus Pour out your groans to God with the promise that through Jesus, he hears. Here's the fourth thing. Number four, I want to see the social ramifications of sin. The social ramifications. Look down, if you would, to verse 11. David says, My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. 
and my relatives stand afar off. Do you see what's happening? On top of everything else, David feels like he's been abandoned. It's like his friends and his family have, they've distanced themselves as David has struggled through this sin and the consequences of it. Now, I don't know if this was real or if this is something David imagined. Because the truth is that there are times when you're in sin and you're overwhelmed by the guilt of it that you feel like other people are distancing themselves when really what's happening is you're creating the distance. Because there's a tendency when you're, when you're lost in your shame to start kind of turtling up and withdrawing. And in that, you can feel like everybody else has withdrawn. But David, David feels like everybody else has left him. And maybe they have. But, but there's also a negative side to what's happening. Look down, if you would, to verse 12. David says, so his friends have left, but verse 12, those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. Go down to verse 19. My enemies are vigorous and they're strong, and those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those also who render evil for good, they're my adversaries. Because I follow what is good. So there's two sides to it. His friends have pulled back while his enemies are closing in. So the people who don't like David are starting to circle like vultures. They don't want to miss this chance to kick David while he's down. So you see how all of this has left David feeling like he is all alone. So not only is he struggling under the weight of his sin and feeling guilty and ashamed, on top of all of that, David feels like he's been abandoned. I was thinking this week, one of my prayers for our church is that there would would never be anyone who's part of our church family who would be able to justly say, I sinned and they were afar off. This is part of what we were just reading in our church covenant, right? Is one of the things, one of the things we are acknowledging when we join a church. I join a church in part because I'm saying, I'm a sinner and I need help. I need lots of eyes on me. I need lots of encouragement. I'm going to need correction and I'm going to need confrontation and I'm going to need edification. I'm going to need all of those things. So it's great. Listen, church, it is great if we love each other enough that we move toward one another when we're struggling with sickness. That's fantastic. It's great if we love each other enough that we move toward each other in grief and mourn with one another. But if that's as far as as our love goes, we're not loving each other enough. The Lord calls us that we're willing to move toward one another in our sin. This is Paul in, in Galatians 6 saying, Brothers, if anyone's overtaken in any trespass, Let those who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. This is what the Lord's called us to. We don't don't back away from each other in our sin struggles. We press in. Sometimes we press in to confront. Sometimes we press in to encourage. Sometimes we we press in to warn. Sometimes we press in just to, to help and comfort. Always we're pressing in to point each other back to the cross But our goal as a church is that there be no one in our church fellowship who says, I sinned and they were afar off. It's not what God's called us to, but that's what David feels. Keep reading. Look at verse 13. David says, but I, like a deaf man, do not hear. 
And I'm like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus I'm like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth is no response. This is just emphasizing how isolated David felt. He felt like a deaf man who heard nobody speak. He felt like a mute man who never spoke because he had nobody to talk to. So David feels completely isolated. And I would add, that is exactly where our sin wants us to be. There's that famous quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'll read it. Bonhoeffer wrote, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more attractive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. The point is, it's not a coincidence that when we begin to struggle with sin, one of the temptations is to withdraw from the faith community. That's not, that's not a coincidence. That's exactly where sin wants us. So when you feel that in your heart, resist it. Let, let me say this. Some of you are here this morning resisting that. You got up this morning struggling. It has been a bad week where you, you couldn't count your failures on a 9 by 11 sheet of paper if you wrote them all out. You can't believe you failed in the same area again. And you got up this morning and everything in you was screaming, you should not go to church. Who are you to go to church? Why would you go to church? And you being here this morning is you doing what I'm talking about. You being here this morning is you resisting that urge to withdraw and isolate yourself. And do you see how merciful God is? That on the morning that you resisted that and came, God has in His plan for you, for you to hear Psalm 38. Do you hear God's mercy in that to you? That the morning that you resisted that and came, God is saying, call out. He'll hear you. Call out. He's merciful. But sin brings with it social ramifications. Here's the final thing. Number four, I want to see David's response to the sin. Here's kind of what it boils down to. Verses 15 and 16. David says, For in you, O Lord, I hope. You will hear, O Lord my God. For I said, Hear me, lest they rejoice over me. Lest when my foot slips, they exalt themselves Against me. You see what's happening? Even though David feels hopeless, he is putting his hope in the Lord. Even though David feels like he's all alone, David knows that God hears him. So that what, what's happening is important. So make sure you listen to me for a second. David's feelings are an absolute wreck at this point. But David is not letting his feelings dictate what's true. His feelings are telling him he's alone. His feelings are telling him he's abandoned. But David knows that's not true. He knows God hears him. He knows God is there with him. So David is going to trust God in spite of what he feels. That is so important. One of the, one of the big dangers in, in sort of the Western evangelicalism's focus, let me say it this way. There's a tendency in, in Western church life to always equate spirituality with feelings. So you know you had a spiritual experience if you feel a certain way. You know that was a good church service if you feel a certain way about it. But listen, church, listen. Some of the most important steps you'll take in your Christian life will come in those moments when you don't feel it. 
So if everything for your spiritual walk is about what you feel, and that's determining what's true, your spiritual walk will be a constant mess. Because your feelings will lie to you. Your feelings will tell you things that are not true. And so David is not letting his feelings determine what's true. His feelings are telling him he has no hope. But David says, my hope is in the Lord. And, and I should add, this is what it means to walk by faith. Walk by faith is not walking by feelings. Walk by faith means I walk trusting in what God has said, trusting in what God has promised, trusting in what God has commanded, even when I don't feel it. That's what David is doing here. He's casting his hopes on the Lord even when he feels hopeless. Verse 17, For I am ready to fall. And my sorrow is continually before me. So he's on the brink of collapse. So what does he do? Verse 18. I will declare. That's confess. I will declare my iniquity. I'll be in anguish over my sin. You see what David's owning here? David is not in this spot because of his parents. He's not in this spot because of his friends. He's not in this spot because of his genes. He's in this spot because of his sin. And so David is going to confess his sin to the Lord. That does not come naturally. What comes naturally is for us to follow in the steps of Adam and Eve. What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? They hid from God in the garden right? And in their sin, they tried to get their own little fig leaves to cover their shame themselves. David is saying he's not going to do that. He's going to declare his sin. He's going to, he's going to lay it bare before God because he knows that as long as he holds on to it, as long as he remains quiet about it, it is going to eat away. Did you notice that in the psalm that I started with this morning, the way he describes this same thing? Listen again to a few verses from Psalm 32. Psalm 32 I'll start in verse 3. David writes, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. And here comes the change. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I've not hidden. I said I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. While David's saying while he held on to his sin, it felt like his bones were rotting away. He might have looked fine on the outside. He was a twisted mess on the inside. He says here, it felt like the drought of summer. It felt like a Middle Eastern summer inside where everything was barren and everything was dry and there seemed to be no life inside of David. And he says that he felt this way day and night. It's like there was never any relief. He was constantly feeling this pressure and this guilt and this shame until, David says, he confessed his sin to the Lord. That means David finally laid his sin bare before God. He just pulled back the covers and showed his sin before God in all of its gory detail. Right? Isn't it true that even in our confession, even when we confess sin, there's a tendency to sugarcoat it and explain it and minimize it. But David is saying that he is laying his sin out before God in all of its ugliness. He's calling his sin what it is. But how could God forgive it? Listen, you and I know some of the sins. We've read the story of David. 
We know some of the horrible sins he committed. How could God forgive that? Same thing for us. If my sin really is that ugly, if my sin really is an assault on the glory of God, like Romans says, how could God forgive it? Does God just have some kind of heavenly fairy dust that he sprinkles over our lives and makes our guilt vanish away? No. God God lifts our guilt by placing our guilt on the shoulders of his son. Our guilt doesn't vanish. Our guilt was carried by Jesus to the cross. So that every, every one of those sins on my list of crimes against God was nailed with Jesus to the cross and he took the punishment for it. He absorbed the wrath in my place. And confession is just the cry of a heart that is broken by sin, that is willing to be honest before God about what that sin is, and that is clinging to Jesus, crucified and risen for our forgiveness. And that's what David is doing in both of these psalms. Look down if you would. Verse 21, and we'll wrap up. David says, Psalm 38, verse 21. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Do you see all the titles that David's working through here? Verse 21, do not forsake me, O Lord. You'll remember when you see Lord in all caps, it's letting you know that's, that's the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. David is praying to the God of the covenant, the God who pledges himself to his people. The God who loves his people with an unbreakable, unshakable love. The God who will never forsake his people. That's the God he's praying to. And then David calls him next, my God. David is not praying to some God he heard was out there somewhere. David's praying to a God he knew, a God he was trusting in. And then that last phrase, he refers to God as God, Lord, that's Adonai, Master, my salvation. David is praying to the only God he knows who can help him. David is praying to the only God who could possibly lift his shame in this moment. And church, that's still true. I regularly think of that line, I know I've given it to you a bunch of times, but the John Newton quote where when he was, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, where late in his life, John Newton said, my memory has nearly failed me now, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. In church, he is still a great Savior. And maybe this morning, maybe this morning you are for the first time feeling the weight of your sin. Maybe God's arrows are piercing your heart. Maybe, maybe God's heavy hand of conviction is pressing down on you. And if that's the case, the call from this psalm is call out to God. He's merciful. Lay your sin bare for what it is and put your trust in Jesus as the only one who can lift it from your shoulders and who can make you righteous before God. And, and Christian, maybe what I was talking about earlier has been you this week. Maybe you have succumbed to temptation again and you can't believe you can't believe you fell into that same sin again. You can't believe you're here again. Don't stay there. Pour out your groans to God. 
Take it to Jesus. The cross isn't just what helped us one time. The cross is what we cling to every day. It cries out every day of your life that there's forgiveness for everyone who will look to him and believe. And let me address one other group. Maybe as I was going through this this morning, you know that your life doesn't please God. You know that your life is, is filled with what the Bible calls sin. But maybe you don't feel this kind of grief about it. You know your sin's there. Maybe it makes you a little uncomfortable when I talk about it. But you don't feel any real burden about it. And you know you should. You hear this and you think, I've never experienced anything like that. I know there's sin, but I don't feel any kind of weight over it. Listen to me. It's not a blessing that you don't feel that. It's a curse. Because if, if you don't feel the weight of your sin, you will never turn from it and look to Jesus. So if you're saying this morning, I know it's there, but I don't feel any weight of it. What do I do? What you do is you pray and you ask God for this. Ask God to shoot his arrows of conviction into your heart. Ask God to help you feel this weight. Back to the, the catechism that we do with our kids. One of the questions is, can I repent and believe by my own power? And the answer is, no, I cannot do anything good unless the Holy Spirit enables me. Question, how do I get the help of the Holy Spirit? Answer, God will give his Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Ask, pray, pray that God would send his Spirit to convict you. Pray that God would send his Spirit to help you feel the weight of your sin so that you would repent and turn to Christ in faith. So I'm going to give you some time in your seat to make Psalm 38 your own. You know, one of the things I was thinking this week as we go through the Psalms, um, there are weeks when I might be preaching through a Psalm of lament and uh, half the people in here might not be lamenting. You might be celebrating. And there are other times when I might be preaching a Psalm of celebration and you might be lamenting. So there are times when where you are doesn't line up with the Psalms. That's never the case for these penitential psalms, never. I need these psalms every week. I need Psalm 8, I need Psalm 51, I need Psalm 38 every week. This is a psalm every person in here can make your own. Pour out your groans to the Lord. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to pray in your seat. And then I'm going to come close us in a word of prayer. So you can bow and pray. And then I'll come close us in a few minutes.